It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Welcome back. I'm your host, Jason Furlong, and Stephen Rigg is manning the boards. Today's guest is John Bates. He has worked in various jobs at Brunel University over the last 50 years or so. To Kubrick fans, Brunel University has a special resonance. It was, of course, the location of the Ludovico Medical Facility where Malcolm McDowell, playing Alex, had his treatment. There were, in fact, four areas at the university used by Kubrick. Alex's apartment ground floor lobby, where he comes home to his flat block, the Ludovico facility check-in, Alex's bedroom at the Ludovico facility, and the now iconic Ludovico therapy screening room, where we see Alex bound to a chair, wearing lid locks, and forced to watch violence on the big screen. Vidi not so well. So John Bates, as a 16-year-old itinerant school leaver at his first job at Brunel, was witness to Stanley Kubrick and his team filming A Clockwork Orange, and was even employed to work with Kubrick's crew. Our producer, Stephen Rigg, spoke to John Bates on the 17th of January, 2023. Over to you, Stephen. Uh, so, hello, John. Thanks for joining us today. Could you start by telling us about your childhood in the 60s, particularly during the school holidays when you would visit Thames TV um, at Teddington and Panwood Studios with your dad? Yes, my dad used to work for a company called Grundons, and uh, they were basically a sand and ballast uh, delivery service. And um, what would happen is you'd get something like uh, Pinewood Studios say we need 20 tons of sand for a beach scene or something. And every now and again, my dad's company got got the contract to supply the sand. Um, occasionally, it would be taking rubbish away from the back lot, so where parts of scenery that was no longer needed, they needed to clear some yeah. space, uh, we would end up sort of taking rubbish away. Um, but with Pinewood Studios, that was probably the place I visited most um thames television studios at teddington uh i probably only visited about three times i think but even so that was quite interesting because that was an all-day job um because it was a very small site there wasn't much room to actually get like a mechanical digger that could load the lorry it had to be loaded by hand which usually took sort of like five or six hours but we were looked after while we were there. We were given vouchers to go to the canteen uh, to get something to eat. And th the people there at the studio, they would do all the loading. All my dad had to do was just drive it away at the end of the day. But I did get to go in to see some of the films, you know, sort of productions, Magpie for a start, sort of sneaking into a studio, sort of just watching that being made. Magpie, the yeah. TV show. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. There was a lot of good stuff. Well, a lot, I say a lot of good stuff, a lot of stuff I used to watch and enjoy in, in the 80s because I was born in 70. 
uh, came from Thames TV. I think they did things like Benny Hill and Kenny Everett and things like that. Yep. That was the kind of stuff I was watching. I think they came out of Thames TV. Um, they did indeed. I do remember that uh, actually seeing some of the actors that used to be on some of the Benny Hill shows. Oh, yeah. Um, I think there was one there. I think her name was Rita Webb. She was quite right. a fat lady, um, but uh, she was always in comedies and things like that. So back in 1970, I believe that's that's the year you left school and you got your first job, which happened to yes. be at uh, Brunel, and you uh, witnessed the filming of A Clockwork Orange. So tell us about leaving school and getting the job and coming across uh, Kubrick's film while you were there. Yeah, right. Well, when I first uh, was planning to leave school, my initial sort of plans were to to be in something photographic, sort of actually photography. Um, I did all the usual things, you know, so I applied to the local paper to see if anybody had a, a trainee sort of scheme going for photography, uh, for a photographer. Um, I applied to uh, the Metropolitan Police to see if they had something going, like a trainee scheme for a photographer. Yeah. You know, the scene of crimes photographer. And again, there was no joy there. Um, the BBC I applied to, but the, there was nothing sort of going on there. Um, by this time, my sort of careers teacher was getting a bit concerned about didn't see me making any progress to find a job uh, mm. in the way of photography. Um, I do remember she made one suggestion, which really, to me, was not what I wanted to do. She suggested I get a job at Dixon's. They sell cameras, oh. she said. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> that was not what i wanted to do no no i, I completely politely gave a reply to this i'll think about it but that was it yeah you know, it wasn't what i wanted to do but anyway yeah. bottom line of it was um i left school um we made plans to go on holiday for two weeks as a family down to cornwall um prior to that the year before uh my dad had bought a new not a new car, but another car, and was looking to get rid of his old car. And one of our neighbours decided he would like like to buy it, so he bought it off of us. And but he worked at Brunel University, and he was a maintenance man uh, in the maintenance department. Uh, he was a plumber by trade, and he was, uh, you know, he knew about me leaving school, you know, and I'd spoken to him often when I passed his house and that. But anyway, w when we came back from holiday. Uh, he had seen a job advertised at Brunel for a junior audiovisual technician. Um, mm. And he knew I was interested in photography, but he wasn't sure whether that's what I would really want to do, whether it was, you know, what I should be going for. But he had spoken to the, um, the departments that dealt with uh, applicants and said, look, there's, there's somebody coming back from a holiday this weekend. And I think they might want to apply for this, but you've got the closing date is Friday. Would you take their application if they got it to you on Monday? Anyway, so as soon as I got back on the on the Saturday, first thing I knew was him knocking on the door saying, I've got this advert here. There's a job going at Brunel. I'm not sure if it's what you want to do or whether you want to think about it. And I looked at it and I thought, yeah, okay, I'll go for that. Anyway, bottom line of it was I went for an interview a couple of weeks later and I got the job uh, at Brunel University starting in in, uh, in the July of that year of 1970. And wow. that was that was the start of it, thanks to to, to Les, uh, was, that was the neighbour, a very nice man and that. And, um, I, you know, he didn't have to do that, but he obviously knew I was interested in 
photography and other types of media type things and mm. uh, that's what, what what happens so that was nice of him i thought very kind of him to actually approach the, the department to say look this somebody might want to apply for this would you accept the application if they get it to you monday right and was it a perfect job for you when you got settled in and saw what it was all about it, it was yes because it, it's <sighs> It gave me a variety of things that I learnt. Um, I mean, photography would have been one thing, but this involved dealing with films, photography indirectly, um, sort of sound reinforcement for presentations and for conferences, uh, reprographics, which is in the days of when people still used overhead projectors to project mm. uh, transparencies to, to classes, slide yeah. projectors and things like that. And... I started work there. I was the third member of the team. There was the chief technician, the senior technician, and I was the junior. And, and like I say, I think you know the junior was the the gopher. You know, yeah, of course, go and give us a yes. pack of cigarettes. Yeah. Go and empty the ashtray. Go and yeah. do this. Yeah, I think you had to start from the bottom. You learnt that. I think most jobs back in the seventies. Yeah. But yeah, I got the job there, and um, it was. I sort of started to learn the craft, the skills of what I was supposed to be doing, how to operate projectors and and how to project slides the right way around, not have them upside down, things like that. <laughs> and uh, we had um, we had a memo come through from uh, one of the administration uh, offices to say there would be a film crew coming to Bruno University, uh, a company called Hawk Films Limited, Mm-hmm. And they would be on campus from the 10th of September to the 20th of September. And in the memo, it just gave very brief details of the locations they would be filming in, the days they would be setting up, and the days they would hope to be filming. Though they did say that this may be subject to change. Uh, and that was the first I knew about a film company coming to, to Brunel. But having said that, I did know about uh, another film that had been shot at Brunel because back in 1968, uh, my mother was working at Brunel as a cleaner uh, in one of the halls of residences. And she, uh, one of the halls, the residence they had been they used as a as dressing room and restrooms for the actors was, was the block that my mum worked in. Ah. And that had Peter Cook, Arthur Lowe, and people like that. Uh, and the, and the film was out. called. The film was, it was called uh, the Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer. Yeah, and it was in fact David Frost's very first film that he produced with his yeah. new company, uh, Paradigm yeah. Films, I think. Okay, and uh, and I think uh, I think John Cleese was in that scene shot at yes. Brunel. So your mum might have bumped into John Cleese and Graham Chapman from yeah. the Parthens. That's yeah. right. Yes, with a, as I say, she she got she got. She took it on herself, bless her soul, to get loads of autographs. But again, it's one of those things when you are a child, when you are young, you don't always take things in. You don't always appreciate it. And when I came home, on the on the mantelpiece was the scribbled, you know, autographs by Peter, you know, Peter Cook and John Cleese and Arthur Lowe and that. And you know, so I got these because these people are in my block. You know, they're using our our rooms as restrooms and dressing rooms. You know, and uh, and uh, makeup rooms, and I, I just remember thinking, oh, great, thanks, and I just put them to one side in a drawer, and then that was the last of it, and then eventually disappeared. Um, you know, but it's it's sad. Um, going back to um, the rise and rise of Michael Rimmer, the office I worked in was a tiny little room 
uh, where the three of us, there, was, there wasn't room for three desks. There was just two desks and a small chair in a corner. And that was it, you know. So I always sat in the corner, the chair, waiting to do the next <laughs> task. But um, it was one of those offices where we never locked the door. Now, this is what I was told by my boss. Um, he had left the office to go and do something. They were filming in Theatre E for The Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer. And uh, when he came back to his office, um, he found that John Cleese was sitting in his chair at his desk with his feet up on his desk using the phone to make a call. Ooh. Yes. Now, unfortunately, my, my late boss, Ron Broughton, was not a man to mince words. It was very clear that he was not happy. And uh, Cleese beat a hasty retreat uh, with while the walls were being painted blue with foul language. Wow. <laughs> About what he should do and what he shouldn't do. <laughs> yeah. He shouldn't have been yeah. in his office. But that was that was that that film, and uh, there was another occasion during filming, and that John Cleese being quite a tall character, um, the projection room in Theatre E uh, was one of those Friday afternoon jobs where when they were building it, somebody got the measurements wrong and started building the door frame on the wrong point, so Oof. it was actually six inches lower than what it should have been because there were steps going up, and it should have been at the top of the steps. And unfortunately, John Cleese opened the door to go into the projection room where Arthur Lowe was operating the projector uh, and cr promptly cracked his head on the top of the doorframe. Um, that might have been sort of just rewards in my boss's mind. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> John Cleese was, uh, taking, yeah. The, yeah, taking the liberty to use his phone. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But yeah. But um, that was that was the you know the earlier film, the very first one there. But going back to um, to Clockwork Orange, as I say, we've received this memo, um, but it gave no clue as to what the film was about, who was the stars, who was the director, or anything. Um, so we had no real in proper information. But of course, the people started arriving, and then that's when they started building the sets. So the um, Area where uh, Alex goes to visit his parents, or where he's living with his parents, which I believe they called was Municipal Flat Block 18A Linear North. Where I lived was with my dad and mum in Municipal Flat Block 18A Linear North. It's quite a mouthful to say, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Yes. laughs> Um, that they used the, the building they used for that scene was one of the towers in the university. We have four towers in the university. They're all named either Tower A, Tower B, Tower C, and they chose to use Tower D. So when we see uh, Dow sort of strolling with his uh, uh, into the what appears to be utter carnage and sort of disrepair, broken lift door, litter everywhere. He yeah. just has a look around, and then as he starts to stroll up the stairs, he picks up a bra that's been discarded. And yeah. that's, uh, t that was Tower D's main entrance lobby area. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Uh, that's where we've got the uh, elevated door hanging off, and he kind of pulls that's the door. That's right. I presume that got fixed later or replaced. Yeah, that was – together. I think – I think what they did was they put in a false door and frame there just so it looked like it was as, oh, as if it yeah. was actually hanging off. And they probably operated the lift on a key lift to turn it off 
but left the doors open on the on the actual lift itself so that you know you still had the door and the light coming through from there but yeah that's mm. what that's what they did a lot of funny enough a lot of people uh, over the years have asked me they said about the artwork that's seen mm. there and mm. i said no that wasn't part of the university's <laughs> property that was actually put there for the sake for the sake of the film yeah um, and i had a rumor that's actually kubrick's wife may have actually sort of uh, put that piece of artwork together. I might be wrong. You might you sure. could be right. I, I haven't heard that, but she was certainly yeah. an artist, an artist who worked on a big canvas. She yeah. could have quite, yeah. quite possibly done that. I know that uh, I spoke to uh, Michael Tarn, who played one of the Droogs. He played yeah. Pete, the fourth Droog, you might say. And he said that he remembers scrolling the, uh, the graffiti on that mural. Uh, you know, there's very... Oh, I think it's doing white chalk. It's very easy to read. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, Stanley let some of the droogs actually do the graffiti on there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, another location they used, as I say, so we know that Theatre E was was in, based in the lecture centre or lecture, central lecture block, it used to be called many years ago. Um, we got... Excuse me a moment. Is the famous scene isn't the coming from the uh, the big uh, building outside, walking into the check-in area? Uh, yeah, the John now. Frank John John Crank building, I think. Yeah. For those people that are in the know and recognise the campus, it seems to go. Um, can I use this word? Ask about face. Uh, okay. Long way round. <laughs> yeah. Um, basically, he's seen being escorted from the prison to the yeah. Ludovico Institute, but those that work at Brunel recognise that the where he's being marched from is actually the lecture centre, which is where he actually is being, you know, sort of um, being treated mm. uh, in Theatre E. So it's like he's being marched away, but he's actually back in there uh, having uh, the lid locks set up and, and being sort of, you know, treated with the aversion therapy. The next morning I was taken to the Ludovico Medical Facility outside the town centre. And I felt a malanky bit sad having to say goodbye to the old stager, as you always will when you leave a place you've, like, got used to. Right, hold the prisoner! Good morning, sir. I'm Chief Officer of Barnes. I've got 655-321 on a transfer from Parkmore to the Ludovico Centre, sir. Good morning. Yes, we've been expecting you. I'm Dr. Orcott. Dr. Alcott. Very good, sir. Are you prepared to accept the prisoner, sir? Yes, of course. And I wondered if you'd mind signing these transfer documents, sir. There, sir. The, you are right. The building that he marches to is was is no longer there sadly it's been knocked down ready for de redevelopment that part but it used to be called the john crank building uh and that was a like a t a, a tower block and a low two-story rise side attachment to it but as you mm. go in through the doors you would turn right into like a lobby area and that was where uh mcdowell is actually sort of marched through and um officer what was it uh, not Michael Bates. The Ma Michael, Michael Bates. Bates. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Michael Bates actor. does his little bit and marches him in, stomps to attention. Prison escort, move forward. Halt! Excuse me, sir. 
Is that the officer that is to take charge of the prisoner, sir? If I may offer a word of advice, Doc, you'll have to watch this one. A right brutal bastard he has been, and will be again, in spite of all his sucking up to the prison chaplain and reading the Bible. Oh, I think we can manage things. Charlie, will you show the young man to his room now? Right, sir. You come this way, please. And, and uh, presents them to the um, the authority. Um, that was one of probably one of the easiest sets for them to dress because it was a big open space with just a couple of large, easy, comfy chairs put in there for people to sit and wait to be picked up and meet other people. But mm. all they did was they just put in sort of like a reception desk uh, and then some what I call the typical sort of hospital signage mm. behind them, you know, yeah. probably the cheap plastic stuff that's easy to produce. Yeah, know. the slabs in and out, the little panels, yep. yeah. That's it. And that that was purely, that's all they needed to do for, for that location. I bet it was only you guys who worked at the university who realised he was being marched from where he'd already come, yeah. where he was about to be. Everyone else, the movie magic worked for everyone else, didn't it? But you yeah, guys in the record yeah. thought, you'd have gone, what? That's not right. <laughs> yeah, I Exactly, it. yeah. It, to me, every time I see that scene, it always feels disjointed. It, it, yeah. like, hang on a moment. But as you say, um, the, the the marvels of movie magic to, to give you to create the illusion that you want the public to see is fine unless the public knows that area and think, oh, hang on a moment, they were going this direction and now they're going mm. that direction. Yeah. yeah. When Alex uh, is first admitted to the Ludovico Institute, um, is we see him in a bedroom scene where uh, I think is it Doctor Branson that comes in to visit him. Yeah, the, the female doctor is it Doctor Branham? Yeah. Brandon, that's yeah. it, Dr. Brandon. Dr. Brandon visits him. And the uh, nurse with the hypodermic needle. That's right, Nurse Hypo, I think some people called her. Morning, Charlie. Good morning, Doctor. Good morning, Alex. My name is Dr. Branham. I'm Dr. Brodsky's assistant. Good morning, Mrs. Lovely day, isn't it? Yes, indeed it is. Uh, may I take that? How are you feeling this morning? Fine, fine. Good. Now, in a few minutes, you'll meet Dr. Brodsky and we'll begin your treatment. You're a very lucky boy to have been chosen. I realise that, Mrs., and I'm very grateful to all concerned. We're going to be friends then, aren't we, Alex? I hope so, Mrs. What's the IPO for, then? Can I send me to sleep? Oh, no, nothing of the sort. Vitamins, will it be, then? Something like that. You're a little undernourished, so after each meal, we're going to give you a shot. Roll over on your right side, please. Loosen your pyjama pants and pull them halfway down. What exactly is the treatment here going to be, then? Oh, it's quite simple, really. We're just going to show you some films. You mean like going to the pictures? Something like that. Well, that's good. I like to video the old films now and again. That was filmed in one of the halls of residences at Brunel. And what they used, this is when they, he's given the experimental serum 114. Yeah. So that, was, that, that's, that scene for the, the, the bedroom scene was shot in Chepstow Hall in H Block. Um, and it was some of the rooms on the third floor. 
I'm not sure which ones. So I've not been able to find my notes for that. But they used, as I say, about four or five rooms on that third floor for different things, sort of Mm. male dressing, makeup and things like that. So that was, as I say, Alex's bedroom scene. That was Chepstow Hall, H Block. This is what they used. Um, I believe it was room H36, in fact. I don't know where I've picked that note up. H36. I think you might be right. That seems to ring a bell. In fact, hang on a moment. Ah, right, yeah. On the reverse side of that, yeah. Okay, so actual locations. Right. Okay, so H33 was used for male wardrobe. Yeah. H34 was used for female wardrobe. H35 was used to store the equipment or to Mm -hmm. operate the equipment from there. Yeah. H36 was used for Alex's bedroom scenes. And yeah. H37 was used for makeup. Wow. Well, yeah, that all figures. Yeah, that's it. And the notes I've got from the Daily Call Sheets reports, that filming took place in that location on the 9th, 14th, and 16th of September. Ah, right. Yeah. So that's what I remember. This sort of scribbled notes. I really do need to actually sort of start putting these typed up properly rather than scribble that I'd made years ago. But yeah, so that was that. Um, so for Theatre E, they um, decided that the, we used to use a whiteboard to project films onto, uh, which is probably not the best of projection materials. Um, so they actually built a, a proper purpose built cine screen in front of the whiteboard so they were oh, able yeah. to project properly. Um, they obviously had to put something down on the floor uh, and just raise the floor up a little bit, but also make, provide means of securing the chair that uh, McDowell's going to be sitting in. The last thing you want is something like that sort of topping, toppling over if, if, if they move it around too much. So it was obviously anchored down to, to a proper base that sat. You know, on the floor inside the theatre, uh, and that's that's when they started building and checking things out. And as far as I know, from my memories, they came in and started uh, dressing of the set started taking place on the between the thirteenth and the fifteenth of September, okay. and that's the information I've got. Uh, and then, mm. obviously, uh, filming started at different days in different locations during those sort of that period of time they were at Brunel. Mm. But obviously, my point uh, of involvement came when they came to use the theatre for the um, Ludovico scenes and that, uh, for the aversion therapy. Where I was taken to, brothers, was like no cine I ever vided before. I was bound up in a straitjacket, and McGulliver was strapped to a headrest with like wires running away from it. Then they clamped like lidlocks on the eyes, so that I could not shut them, no matter how hard I tried. It seemed a bit crazy to me, but I let them get on with what they wanted to get on with. If I was to be a free young Malchik again in a fortnight's time, I would put up with much in the meantime, oh my brothers. Once they set it up, got it dressed and got the various lights in, um, basically they then needed somebody to operate the house lights, turn them on and off when they didn't need to do that, and also Mm. to operate the cine projector. And yeah. being the new kid on the block, the office junior, uh, that's where I was given the task to say, right, okay, you can sit in the projection room. We'll rig up a pair of headphones and put a microphone outside in the theatre so you can hear what's going on. And, you know, you've got access to the intercom system, so if you need any, you can call us. 
Um, you know, if you need a coffee or need a comfort break, then just buzz us and one of us will come up and relieve you, you know, so you can go and get a coffee or a bite to eat or whatever. And that's what happened. You were operating the projector that is coming over the back of Malcolm McDowell. You're operating That's that right, yes. Oh my God. Yeah. So far, the first film was a very good professional piece of cine, like it was done in Hollywood. The sounds were a real horror show. You could slushy the screams and moans, very realistic. And you could even get the heavy breathing and panting of the tall jumping Malchicks at the same time. And then what do you know? Soon our dear old friend, the red, red vino on tap, the same in all places like it's put out by the same big firm, began to flow. It was beautiful. It's funny how the colours of the real world only seem really real when you video them on a screen. But the thing is, what McDowell sees in the film is not what we were projecting. Of course, they yeah, needed yeah. They needed a shaft of light mm. that indicated it was a projector being yeah. operated, but they obviously at some stage post-production then filmed a different scene with the scenes we of see course. on the screen, what he sees. Can you remember what you projected? Uh, it was probably just some random we, film. You. It was a random film, so random I can't remember. It was a black and white film. Uh, it was just something we had as a stock film just for checking and testing things. Yeah. Um, so it didn't run for very long, um, but it wasn't really what – we what was wanted the problem was the moment you start projecting a film obviously you're cutting down the loud the light output um and kubrick wanted this the projection to be as bright as possible so we we ended up projecting uh or rather we ended up operating the cine projector without any film going through the film gate Mm. So it was just pure, a pure light source going through the lens yeah. projected out onto the screen down at the front. Mm -hmm. Now, all the time I was watching this, I was beginning to get very aware of light not feeling all that well. And this I put down to all the rich food and vitamins. But I tried to forget this, concentrating on the next film, which jumped right away on a young Devochka, who was being given the old in-out, in-out, First by one Malchik, then another, then another. When it came to the sixth or seventh Malchik, leering and smecking, and then going into it, I began to feel really sick. But I could not shut me glasses. And even if I tried to move my glass balls about, I still could not get out of the line of fire of this picture. Uh, get me up. I want to be sick. Get something for me to be sick in. <clears throat> Very soon now, the drug will cause the subject to experience a death-like paralysis, together with deep feelings of terror and helplessness. One of our early test subjects described it as being like death, a sense of stifling or drowning. And it is during this period we have found that the subject will make his most rewarding associations between his catastrophic experience of violence and the violence he sees. Uh, and that's what we use. We were able to 
increase the light outputs because we had the transformer equipment inside the projection room. Um, Kubrick kept saying, can we have more power? Can we make it brighter and brighter and brighter? And of course, um, you know, there's a limit to what we could do. And once we've reached the maximum output on that uh, projector, there was nothing we could do. He would have to work around that. Mm. At one stage, they did try something. They lugged a great big um, studio light into the projection room and set it up and tried that to see what it was like, but they never really worked. And so mm. that was all sort of taken out. Uh, I'm not sure how many watts that was sort of pumping out. Maybe 5,000 watts might have even been 10,000 watts. I don't know. But uh, I do remember it was a hell of a size. It, it is certainly sort of like, you know, that sort of two foot across. In quite a big thing. So this was in the working week. It wasn't at the weekend. It, it, it was... uh, they well, they did filming at weekends, but primarily they didn't involve us at the weekends. So they would have also used other buildings which weren't being used. That could have been um, uh, things such as uh, the scenes where uh, uh, McDowell is, is sort of going to his parents' house for the first time, um, mm. or where he was being marched across. Uh, from prison to uh, the Ludovico Institute reception yeah. area. Uh, yeah. And as I say, that was the sort of time. Because, again, I don't remember seeing those scenes being done. They, no. they seem to be in our theatre for the most of the time. I believe they shot for three or four days in the in the theatre. Were you, in the, were you yeah. in the projection box for three or four days then? I was in there most of the time. There would have been the odd occasion when, you know, I've gone out for a bite to eat or often nipped out for the toilet or something like that mm. um but the majority of the time i was in there uh and again yeah. it was i was at the age of 16 the only thing i knew about kubrick was the film he the, the last film he produced which was 2001's and that and mm. although i was interested in science fiction i knew nothing else about him and at 16 you know sitting in that small box for several hours at a time uh, you know, in fact, longer than that, because most of the filming started about sort of seven or eight o'clock in the morning and would often go on till seven or eight o'clock in the evening, obviously with mm. various breaks for film crews and that. Mm. But it got a bit tedious at times. And, you know, my interest would, would disappear. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not surprised. I mean, it, especially if you haven't got... The only kind of exciting job on a film set is probably the director and the actors. Everyone else yeah. is mainly hanging hanging around, aren't they? Most most That's of right. the, yeah. Most of the yeah. film the film crew. crews all hang around until somebody says jump, and then everything happens. Yeah, you know, and then obviously once they've got everything set up, it's all quiet on the set again. Everybody goes and sneaks off quietly somewhere in the corner, and then, like you say, the actors and the directors start doing their bit with the camera person. But I do remember they did set up quite a few cameras. Uh, for I think, in fact, at one stage, they were doing a three-camera shoot on McDowell when he I was. I believe it was foot. I believe. I believe when they put the uh, the lid locks on, it was four cameras. Yeah. I've just. I've four. Seen a, right. Of, okay. Yeah. I've seen one of the production reports um, that yeah. was talking about that it was kind of uh, talking about the damage to his eye, and it said it was a four camera shoot. Yeah, so four cameras yeah. to cover that because he knew they could only get them on for maybe a few minutes and get. And yes, get that's minutes. right. They, they wanted all the angles. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, the 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 doctor that attends to Malcolm while he's in the chair, uh, I think everybody refers to him as Doctor Lidlocks. That's not his real yeah. name, obviously. 
um, but mm. he actually is a, a trained doctor, and that was the one proviso that uh, they had to have a doctor, proper ophthalmic doctor there, to treat his eyes to make sure that nothing goes wrong. And mm. that's uh, that guy. I didn't get a chance to speak to him, but he just sat there all the time, just keep putting in more drops and more drops. And mm. I do remember, as I on one occasion when I I, I was going for a break, and of course. McDowell was strapped into the chair for quite a few hours at a time. And I just remember looking at him and just thinking that, God, how can you sit there in a straitjacket, in a chair with your eyelids locked open? You know, I couldn't think of anything more horrifying. No. <laughs> you know, than, than I that. No, I, I, yeah, the ass thing. I couldn't have my eyes open. It did well. Uh, I think the doctor was from Moorfields. Is, is, is that a hospital you're familiar with, Moorfields? I, I know of it, but I've mm. never been there. Um, but, yeah, funny enough, I had recently have had eye surgery. But for that option, I decided to be uh, given general anaesthetic for it. Yeah, I'm <laughs> not, not surprised. Yeah. But going back to about the damage to his eye, actually, on on that one occasion, I was, I was walking down the steps. It was during a break in filming. And I, my eyes just had to sort of catch the eye of a, one of the, the film crew. Don't know what he was, camera grip, lighting or whatever. And he just looked at me and he just sort of sort of whispered. He said, "It's going to ruin his eyes, that guy." And I thought, "What?" He said, "He's going to he's going to ruin his eyes doing this." It was the next day, brothers. And I had truly done my best morning and afternoon to play it their way and sit like a horror show cooperative malchick in the chair of torture while they flashed nasty bits of ultraviolence on the screen. Though not on the soundtrack, my brothers, the only sound being music. And that was it. And of course, then, like you say, um, he did have suffered some eye damage and that one of the lid locks, I believe sort of slipped and scratched his cornea. And then there was a break in film and they had to send him home for the rest of the day uh, to try and recover. But yeah, that's what I remember. One of the, one of the film crew saying to me, you know, um, but I also remember another occasion when I was going to the, uh, I was actually going to the shop. I think it was like during a lunch break or well, my lunch break anyway. And um, I've got downstairs to the ground floor of our building and that. And there's one of the film crew there. I'd recognized him, having seen him up up in the main area before in the in the theater. And I said to him, I said, oh, what, what, what are you doing down here? I said, you, you skiving for a cigarette or something? He said, oh, no. He said, I've been positioned down here. He said, if any woman walks in here wearing high heels, I have instructions to ask them to remove the high heels. Uh, so the clip cloth doesn't echo around the building on the stone flooring in this in in the in the entrance. And I, I just looked at her. I said, "You what?" He said, "Yeah." He said, it, "He's paranoid that stray sounds are going to come up the stairwells and be picked up during the recording." They might well have done. Yeah, in those exactly. Echoey places. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's amazing how much things are behind the scenes, isn't it? Just to get a film made that. Thousands of moving parts that you don't even consider, but just simple things like that. I mean, someone um, on guard for high yeah. heels. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I, I, I can't imagine what the response was from the first woman that walked in there wearing high heels when they were asked to remove them, <laughs> but I wasn't around for that. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's, it's the sort of things you see that goes on in filmmaking. 
and it's it's really strange at times. Did you go to the canteen? We were in a shared canteen with the crew. Did you bump into any uh, of the uh, casting crew? No. No, I I would use I use the university's canteen facilities, and I'm sure that the film crew had their own sort of chuck wagon, so to say, that provided food for them. And that um, again, you know, there's, there were times when you know, for me, it was a, a cup of coffee was brought up and maybe a sandwich, and I sometimes sat and ate it in the projection room. I mean, as I say, spending quite a few hours you know, in, in that small projection room and that, and it, it did get a bit tedious at times because like you say, there's a lot of hanging around while they get things set up and obviously mm. setting up lights, changing camera positions and that, and then eventually they would go for a, a rehearsal and a rehearsal and a rehearsal and a rehearsal. <laughs> and then be, well, as I say, Kubrick was, was very sort of particular, you know, was, was always looking for the ultimate perfection wasn't it? Yeah. And it was scene after scene or take after take. And I do remember there was one occasion when I was going again, having a, a, a mini break, getting out of the projection room for a while. I'd nipped out for a coffee. Uh, even with the theater doors closed, I could hear McDowell's voice could be heard echoing around the building. Stop it. Stop it. Please. I beg you, please. It's a sin. It's a sin. It's a sin. Sin? What's all this about sin? That! Using Ludwig Ben like that! It can do harm to anyone! Beethoven just stop music! Are you referring to the background score? Yes! You've heard Beethoven before? Yes! So you're keen on music? Yes! And this was rehearsed over and over and over again and i guess at some stage they did take after take after take um but i just remember that walking down those stairs and just hearing this this voice getting fainter and fainter because he was actually shouting it out his lines mm. and very very low. And like you say old buildings tend to be very echoey you know they're very lively sort of sound arrangements and that but yeah that was one of the things i remember Wow! Yeah, I mean, I mean that scene is probably the one of the most kind of recognisable scenes from Kubrick's whole filmography. Yeah. That the Lidlock scene. It's and you yeah. were there. You witnessed that. Wow! Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. As I say, Amazing. it's just one of those things. You just as I say at the age of sixteen, I didn't really appreciate it properly. That was the problem. Do, so, do, do you remember if? Kubrick was directly giving you instructions, or did he? Or did he have a, a like a first AD? He was communicating. No, I, with you? I think it was probably the first AD, or maybe the second AD. Yeah, mm. no, um, never actually got to speak to to Kubrick. Walked no. past him. <laughs> yeah, but again, at sixteen, I didn't feel confident enough to say hello, Mister Kubrick. Yeah, you know, that would have been a bit too cheeky. <laughs> but you real you realised he was the director, he was in charge. You could tell yeah. he was the main the main man in the room, kind of thing. Yeah, I did, I did indeed. Yeah, as I say, mm. what I didn't realise was, you know, uh, was that it it wasn't until years later that I'd witnessed the master at work, mm. a perfectionist, 
you know yeah and that's what that's what that's what he was you know if it took 20 takes or 20 rehearsals to get one second or one one minute's worth of film in the can that's what he would do yeah. but to me just sitting there in that box with a pair of headphones on just watching you know through a tiny little slit of a window projection window what's going on it you know after a while it gets a bit sort of boring the thing is i couldn't sort of sit and read because i really had to be on the ball to be yeah. able to sort of turn the lights on and off and operate the projector and that's yeah. that's one of the reasons why i think i got a bit bored at times yeah but it's still enjoyable to a point mm. but it's just to say it wasn't you know until many years later and people say you worked on that film wow yeah, you know, yeah what about it <laughs> yeah <laughs> but then, it was. then my interest sort of started to grow about it you know wanted to find out more and more about it you know just wish i had a camera yeah oh yeah if you'd rather few behind the behind the scenes shots you mentioned in your notes earlier on about um some dates when they were filming yes they did come back to do some pickup shots as well in ah, February. Um, that's why I've got the. That's why I've got the two different dates. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I've got I've got the fourteenth through eighteenth of November for the original the Ludovico uh, screening room stuff, uh, yeah. and then uh, mid February. I think they, I think they came back just to do some close ups on on Malcolm's eyes. I think that's all they wanted to do. They and did. That's when they, yeah, because he saved it right to the end of the shoot. It was literally one of the last days of the shoot, I believe, with the eyes, just in case anything went wrong, and it did. Yeah. They finished yeah. filming with Malcolm. I think that was the very last thing he shot with Malcolm. So yeah, yeah they it came was. back just to the close-ups. Yeah, it was on the as on the daily reports that I'd seen some years ago. I made a note of what what it said, and it said that they were pickup shots for Malcolm. Uh, I believe Doctor Lidlocks was going to be there, and the chair, and they just needed to get some pickups, uh, and and also partly the voice as well. So they needed to get the acoustics right. You must take your chance, boy. The choice has been all yours. You needn't take it any further, son. You've proved to me that all this ultra-violence and killing is wrong, wrong and terribly wrong. I've learned the lesson, son. I see now what I've never seen before. I'm cured, praise God. You're not cured yet, boy. But, sirs... Misses, I see that it's wrong. It's wrong because it's like against society. It's wrong because everybody has the right to live and be happy without being told, chopped and knifed. No, no, boy, you really must leave it to us. And be cheerful about it. In less than a fortnight now, you'll be a free man. Funny enough, they, they actually there was um, there was a company, or rather, there was an organisation called C Film Differently, which was sponsored by VW, and okay. they they used to do um, special one-off film shows to recreate uh, um, scenes that were or locations that were used for films. Okay. And on the fortieth anniversary of uh, Clockwork Orange. Um, they actually came back to Brunel, this company called Sea Film Differently, and they basically um, they dressed the theatre. Um, well, sorry, not dressed the theatre. They basically, uh, the first floor foyer 
was turned over to it as an exhibition area of all Kubrick memorabilia to do with Clockwork Orange. Oh, and yeah. they then screened the film later that evening in Theatre E. They, they put in uh, a decent cine projector, well, not cine, a video projector in to, to project it. Uh, and they laid on some food and drink. And it was an inv- you know by invitation only. You, know, you apply for your ticket and so on. And that was all very well attended. And the, the amount of uh, publicity material that they had on display in the, uh, in the sort of first world foyer was fantastic. The one thing I do remember most of all was that if you remember the Maloku bar, we had the ladies where they're yeah. leaning like this and they, how they get their drinks. Yeah. Well, they had, they had replicated four of these. Really? Uh, I don't think they were the originals, but they were being replicated to sit on top of these giant boxes that were yeah. used for displaying photos on the, on the four sides. And at some stage, somebody decided uh, that, no, perhaps we shouldn't be displaying these four ladies on the top of the boxes because of the pose that they're in and, and mm. the fact that they might be described as being obscene. Yeah. So they were never they were never used. But I don't know what became of them. You know, again, the sort of thing like, you know, where, where did they go? They were locked away in a classroom while the exhibition was taking, taking place because it was yeah. for one night only. But they spent about a week dressing the first floor foyer for uh, all the publicity material and displays and that photographs and that. Is there any record of that event? Is there any, were there any photographs taken by, by anybody? Of, of I took foyer? some photos. Yeah, yeah, I took some photos. There may be something, if you do an internet search, for uh, see film differently. And if you can find that link, you may find that there may be some photos, publicity photos. Because they did things like, um, oh, let's see, an American werewolf. Oh, yeah, uh, one of my favourites. They, they did that, yeah. Well, they they went back to one of the locations um, I saw the film many, many years ago, so I, I don't remember what location they used, but they would, they would basically take a film, a well-known film, and go back to a location and arrange to do screenings, a screening at that location, along with a lot of publicity material on display for one day and one night only. Ah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Right, so that was on the 40th anniversary, so that was about 10 years ago, 12 years Yet. ago. Right. yeah. 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 So so at that point you were back at Brunel for your yes. second stint. Yeah. yeah, I left Brunel in nineteen eighty to move on for a you know, sort of into a, a, a more challenging job. Um and then so the next fourteen years, um I worked at the local hospital, Hillingdon Hospital, working in the uh school of nursing, which is where at that time nurses uh undertook their nurse training on the wards rather than doing it like they do today. Um and that job might required me to sort of uh, work based at Hillingdon to looking after the learning resources and teaching room facility mm. there, but also it covered the Harefield Hospital and the Mount Vernon Hospital, which was part of the same group. So my yeah. job was qu- was quite a, a nice job because no two days were ever ever alike. You know, it was, mm. it was, it was, it was nice, you know. It's, you know, it's, variety is the spice of life, as they say. Sure, sure and that that day, lady job, you know, as I say, would just change from day to day, here, there, there, and so on. I really enjoyed that. Do you remember the first time you saw the film? Did you go to the cinema? Or were you not that bothered? Yes, yeah. 
Um, the film, when it was released, um, uh, we had two cinemas in Uxbridge. Uh, one was the Odeon and the other one was the Regal. And it was being screened at the Regal. So I told, obviously, a lot of my friends I told about the film being made at Brunel. So when it first came out, um, about four or five of us decided we would go to the cinema the first night it was being shown. But so we walked in, but it, it was quite strange because it felt like half of Brunel campus was there as well. Um, oh, yeah, you know, sort yeah. of looking around, I was thinking, oh, I know him. Oh, I know her. Oh, yes. Oh, that's Dr. Sanso. Oh, that's Professor Sanso. Oh, look, there's some of the students I drink with. You know, oh, oh, hang on. Yes. And it was just like, it's like half the, half the theater was filled with people from Brunel. Wow. It was quite good. And that, I believe that was probably January 72. That's when it kind of I think of it was, opened, yeah. I think it was. Yeah. I could tell you when uh, on my notes. Right. First screen on the 13th of January, 1972. Mm. So that's the date. That um, There is one other location, um, but I've never been able to get any further information about it um, from notes that I made. And that was, um, they did supposed to have shot scenes in the what was called the Engineering Centre at okay. Brunel. Now, that scene that I can, I've sort of looked at, and I think it's the bit where, um, it's the scene where uh, Madal is actually given a beating by the police officers, uh, and uh, one of them sort of gobs in his face. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, that was Stephen Burkhoff, wasn't it, I think? Yeah. So you think that might have been at Brunel as well? Yeah. Well, what what I've got on that that um, on that on sort of memo, um, what did it say? But filming was planned to take place in uh, the engineering centre, third floor, north corridor. Um, but then again... They also mentioned about filming in the mass annex John Crank building. And then there seems to be another option of filming in Tower D. Now, I think they gave themselves the options to film in different locations mm. on maybe one day or two days. But I've been over to the uh, engineering center. It's now been renamed the uh, Howell building or Howell Theater. And yeah. it's changed so much structurally inside. It's difficult for me to identify actual rooms. You know, rooms have been divided or knocked through, made up, you know, sort of rebuilt again and that. So it's changed totally. The only thing that makes me think that is Brunel is the typical Brunel brickwork that's been painted over. Painted white, yeah. With like, and I think it's is it like grey at the bottom and white at the top yeah. or something? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's um being an engineer in university, they used a lot of engineering bricks in the building mm. lids. Uh and I wouldn't be surprised underneath those coats of paint is, is engineering bricks that form part of the room. But you know, it's, I when I do my research, I like to try and actually pinpoint actual locations to say, yes, that is the room that was used. But because it's changed so much in that building, um, it's been knocked about and revamped so many times. There's nothing there that gives me any clue of mm. whereabouts they filmed. And unfortunately, all these years later, there is nobody still working at Brunel uh, that remembers that filming going on because they've actually given it the title of, right, I'd, I had a note scribbled down somewhere that they 
it was called a psychological testing unit. Okay. Uh, and for an engineering building, that's a bit of a strange title to have housed in that building. Mm. As you know, I'm a big Kubrick fan, and Clockwork Orange is my favourite Kubrick film, so I'm loving all this. But we should move on to your yep. uh, kind of current, your current project that you've kind of been working on. Yes, um, yes. When I came, go on, tell us about that. Yeah, when I came back to Brunel uh, back in 1994. Um, there was a lot of people I knew from the 80, sent uh, from the 70s that were still working at Brunel and catching up with them over a pint or a bite to eat. And that, they would say, oh, we had, you know, they've had filming done here for Morse, this film, that film. And we get chatting and we got more and more interested in saying, oh, I didn't know about that, didn't know about this. And I started sort of like saying, well, what else has been filmed here? So this started to become a bit like an itch that you can't stop scratching, wanting to find out more information. Yeah. So I would then sort of do a bit of research, and then there was the in-house magazines the university produced on a monthly basis, and those magazines invariably said, oh, um, we've had John Thor and, and uh, Kevin Watley here uh, last week uh, filming scenes for Inspector Morse, and then another magazine, there'd be another thing, about another film and so on. So I found that sort of information out. And then that started the the real challenge was what exactly did they film? What episode? When? What locations? Uh, and also uh, any other films or TV series that were shot here. So I then sort of realized that, in fact, Inspector Morse has been shot on campus, I think, Um there was about seven it was used on seven or eight occasions for different episodes and so there's quite a lot of sort of more series that have been shot at brunel over the years and the interesting thing was that when morse series finished the very very first episode of lewis which they decided to see if there was you know it could follow on in its yeah. own sort of on its own strengths um was originally called a uh, pilot because it was a pilot episode. Okay. Yeah. And they called that, they eventually um, retitled that uh, reputation. It was later yeah. renamed reputation, but because it was a pilot episode, whenever you looked at anything, they, they refer to it as pilot. Yeah. The first okay. episode, but it's called rep episode. And the strange thing about that was that I remember watching them filming scenes for that but not realizing what it was about. I didn't realize mm. it was for Lewis, but yeah, they've done right. other things. We've, we've been fortunate enough to have a whole host. We seem to be used as either a police station or as a hospital these days. Yeah. <laughs> the campus. So to give you an idea, we've got, uh, let's see. Oh, we also had um, the new Avengers with Patrick McNee uh, and uh, Gareth Hunt, was it, I believe? Yeah. Gareth yeah, Hunt and Joanna Lumley. Yeah. Yeah, they were, they were filming at Brunel. I remember watching that, and I did do actually some video, uh, cine filming of that. I brought my cine camera in and managed to get a few uh, moments of footage of them filming and that. And that was for an episode called Sleeper. Okay. And then we had uh, a whole host of other things. There was a series called The Comic Strip Presents. Comic um, Strip. I love, the, I love the comic strip. Yeah, well, if you get to watch Summer School from Series yeah. 1 – that's virtually the whole of Brunel. Oh, wow. 
And yep. let's look at that. Let's look at that again. I've got the uh, the box set with every episode. Yep. They did about thirty episodes. Well, that's 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 what was filmed there again. Um, I wasn't here to watch that. Uh, unfortunately, there was another series called Fox um, about a family, an East End London family that were a bit of a gangster family, and that was filmed at Brunel. But I didn't. Again, I wasn't around to see that. And then we had one of the last things I saw at Brunel um, before I left was Sweeney. Ah, um, that classic show. Yes. Now that one uh, was called "Thou Shalt Not Kill." Ah. And about 90% of that uh, episode is filmed at Brunel. And it was filmed during uh, a very, very hot summer. In fact, during a drought is when you watch the DVD, you look at the grass and you think that's not green. That looks like it's dead. (laughs) Um, And if you look closely at the faces of the actors, you'll notice the fact that despite the makeup lady doing all she could or he could do, um, everyone seemed to have little beads of sweat all over their face (laughs) because the temperatures were very much in the high 80s by then. and We were in the middle of a drought. But yeah, that episode, I remember watching that. That was quite good. And, yeah. of course, that was John Thor again. So when he came back to the moors, he'd already been there for the Sweeney. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But as I say, I, I carried on researching and that. And over the years, what's happened now is uh, I've built up a, a, a listing that is currently around about 95 uh, different films or TV shows or even adverts that have been shot at Brunel. And most cases, certainly from the, from the 1994, when I was back on campus, I was able to watch and make notes of what was filmed, where they were filming, who was there, and so on. If I didn't see it, then invariably I would buy the DVD and I would sort of research it through detail by detail. And that's what I've sort of built up now. The ultimate aim is, is from this list that I've created, uh, is to produce a booklet of some sort. A lot of people are saying to me, you should do it as an internet thing, but I still... I still want something tangible that you can put in your hand and say, here's a book yeah. rather than something that's just a website. Um, mm. you know, oh, but, that, that, sounds fasc- that sounds fascinating. I'd be a customer for that book, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I love, I love <laughs> I those kind I, of books. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, that will come to fruition. I'm, seeing, I'm trying to see if I can convince the university to actually sort of uh, finance it for me. Mm. You know, it's a limited run of books. I don't know how many, but, you know, um, at one stage I thought I had the print room on my side, but just recently they've stopped taking on private work because I would have actually put the money up myself and said, right, what would it cost to do a run of, say, 100 books, Mm. you know, uh, and get a figure? And I would put the money up myself. But I'm waiting to see if the university will step in and say, oh, hang on a moment, John, this is something that the university can benefit from as well because of all the research you've put in. Have you actually, is the book ready to go? Is it all written? No, no, no. It's, it's, it, what it needs now is some fine tuning. It needs some proofreading. It needs some fact checking. Some screen grabs and pictures and things. Yeah. I say, well, I've got a lot of photographs really to go with this, uh, you know, to, to add in and some of them, that, you know, and I've still got some, I still haven't finished researching because we've had so many films being or TV series being shot on campus. It's the sort of thing where um, when I do do the research and I sort of do the writing up and that, I have to be focused. I have to be in the right mood to do it. It's not something I try and do half-heartedly. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So there's quite a few things in there. I mean, 
there's now talk about another Netflix production coming to Brunel uh, soon. But I'm getting to the stage where I'm thinking I'll have to start excluding things that are going on simply because otherwise I'm never going to get to a cutoff. I need a cutoff point. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, I'll just keep having to add and then do more research. Yeah. But part of this summer was um, my plans were to sort of really focus on this and get it done. Yeah. But there's a whole host of things I've got. You know, there's uh, adverts. Uh, we've had adverts done for bread. Um Adverts for, in fact, adverts for so many different things. Um, the one of the probably the most interesting one I thought was basically um, the stunt double for um, when they're doing the uh, adverts for uh, the car hire company, where the guy parachutes into a car. Enter car Enterprise Car Hire was the company. Okay, yeah, I know the company. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, They've got the guy. He's basically he's he, he did two episodes, two two adverts for him. But the first one is actually while he's doing parachuting, he actually makes a phone call to uh, Enterprise Car Hire and say, "I need a car quickly. Uh, can you make sure it's a convertible and leave the roof open?" Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> he drops, in, that's he that's drops that's into the car. <laughs> And the hits just keep on coming. Quite a cool story, huh? Lots more coming, so keep your eyes peeled. No lid locks required. Don't forget to check out our groups on Facebook, the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, and also the page for Kubrick's Universe. We also have two YouTube channels, which you can search, the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and Kubrick's Universe. So on behalf of Stephen Rigg, I'm your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong, saying thanks for tuning in. And in the immortal words of Bartles and James, thank you for your support. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.